everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 5, issue 217. Play along with us, do, and our next five games for the podcast include Conker's Bad Fur Day, Persona 3, Rage, then Gunstar Heroes, and after that we return to The Legend of Zelda with Majora's Mask. Head to canorince.com for articles, features, reviews, links to our forum, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel. And if you enjoy what we do, the podcasts and all that other stuff, you can support us in a number of ways now. We have a Patreon uh, where there's no hidden content behind paywalls. uh, But if you wish to donate something, a little something, a dollar a month or more, uh, or just a one-off, seek us out at patreon.com slash canorince. If you prefer to wear something with our rather excellent uh, livery on it uh, and still chuck us a couple of quid, uh, if you go to shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash rinse, you can find T-shirts and bags there and they're very nice. Uh, we also have a music podcast, video games music, of course, uh, nine tracks every other week. It's called Sound of Play. Seek it out on iTunes and elsewhere. And as I always ask, please do remember to at least rate us, if not review us, but certainly, most importantly, subscribe to both Cana Rinse and Sound of Play on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio or TuneIn or any other platform you care to use. And if we don't appear on your platform of choice, let us know and we'll try to rectify that. Now, Zerada no Densetsu Toki no Ocarina or The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time or Ocarina as I believe the instrument used to be called before this game came out and everyone decided to pronounce it apparently incorrectly Ocarina which is probably what we'll stick to and I imagine the game will be referred to as just Ocarina for the rest of the game because uh, actually when you if you type O-O-T it looks good but if you say Oot uh, it doesn't mean anything except out in Scottish so this is our uh, fifth Zelda podcast now because this was the fifth Legend of Zelda game. Uh, it was developed, of course, by Nintendo EAD. Um, but interestingly, after uh, Takashi Tezuka perhaps took the lead role, as we understand it, on its uh, Game Boy predecessor, Link's Awakening, which we discussed a month ago, uh, he took a, um, a far more removed supervisor role on this one. Um, so uh, the directors, it was, uh, I think, uh, as we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, it was one of the first games where Nintendo used... Uh, a, a, a clutch of developers uh, directors sorry um, Miyamoto obviously of course but also Yoshiaki Koizumi and Eiji Aonuma who uh, of course up from the next game onwards would take over directorship of the series um, composer was the returning Koji Kondo after not working on Link's Awakening directly uh, he was back for this N64 title. I say N64 title. It was famously originally to be developed for the hardware add-on, the 64DD, which, as we've discussed on other shows, only ended up coming out in Japan and wasn't heavily supported by software. Uh, the story goes with the development that Miyamoto was in charge of several directors as a producer and supervisor, but during its development, individual parts were handled by multiple directors, which was a new strategy for Nintendo. However, when things were progressing slower than expected, Miyamoto returned to the development team with a more hands-on directorial role. Uh, whips were cracked, I imagine, and ideas were shared, tables were turned, all that sort of thing. Uh, the development team evolved into more than 120 people which would have been uh, pretty gigantic for a mid to late 90s uh, project so we understand Miyamoto 
initially intended Ocarina of Time to be played in a first-person perspective to enable players to take in the vast terrain of Hyrule Field better, as well as to be able to focus more on developing enemies' environments. However, the development team did not go through with this once the idea of having a child Link was introduced. Miyamoto believed it was necessary for Link to be uh, on screen, as people were used to. Uh, Ocarina started development in the same engine as Super Mario 64, as you'd probably expect, but it ended up being so heavily altered and modified that Miyamoto considers it a separate engine. Uh, uh, The team were unsure as to how large a game world they could make, so initial designs featured a Super Mario 64 system of gateways to different areas, uh, with Ganon's castle acting as the hub. I think possibly it was... It's even said that Link may have dived through paintings, which is something that you can... You know, obviously you see it in Super Mario 64, and it's something you see Ganon coming out of paintings in Ganon's castle... Uh, it also been uh, one of the concepts was the final battle uh, with Ganon was a, uh, a obviously this is prior to that game but Shadow of the Colossus style assault on a giant behemoth sized scalable uh, uh, Ganon but camera and frame rate issues uh, meant that the team knocked that on the head too problematic to implement. Uh, other uh, evidence that's been dug up in more recent times um, suggests that the forest and water temples were uh, originally wind and ice temples. You can see remnants of this because their symbols are a fan and a snowflake, respectively. Uh, and this is verified by a text that's buried away in the code somewhere. Um, and the, their uh, individual sections in Ganon's castle seem to back this up as the uh, the forest one has fan puzzle and the water area has a uh, sort of icy puzzle Um, and the light temple was almost certainly intended to be a separate dungeon um, but as it turned out the light puzzles were instead incorporated into the spirit temple um, and the temple of time was almost certainly intended to have been part of the light temple temple hence prelude of light being used to warp uh, to the temple of time and the light medallion symbol is there uh, and there's a sort of there's a general light motif to the temple of time and you receive the light arrows there uh, and perhaps the most potentially sort of game-changing thing of all, of all these uh, sort of nuggets that have since come out is that remnants of text referring to a build of the game featuring three ages of Link remain in the code, entrances to the past, present and future connected to the Temple of Time. So rather than being just child and adult Link, we might have had some sort of... Uh, he may have started in the middle and gone backwards and forwards, we don't know, but uh, that would have been even more insanely ambitious, and so understandably it was it was stripped back. Of course, this came out for the Nintendo 64 in, in time for Christmas 1998, November and December, depending on where you were in the world. It was on a 32-megabyte cartridge, 256 megabit, which was the biggest that they could do as i understand it the, the most chips they could cram into an n64 car is that right mm. darren yeah it sounds about right resident evil 2 was also the same size cartridge right as well as conquer i think uh, okay um and some lovely gold shiny cartridges were available in japan australia and the usa but not over here in europe uh, the GameCube uh, port emulation, sort of port slash emulation, arrived uh, as part of the Legend of Zelda Collector's Edition in uh, late '02 and early '03, um, which uh, we'll talk about the differences later on. There was an IQ version. Darren, you have an IQ? Yep. I still don't know how to turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> All those years, no. I don't know. 
November 2003. And of course, it's come to both Wii Virtual Console in February 2007. That's nine years ago now. And uh, Wii U Virtual Console in July 2015. And those versions are based on the higher resolution GameCube versions. Um, and there is a 3DS port, which I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about as we go along, um, because that's the version that I've played most recently. Hmm. That came out in June 2011. Even that's nearly five years old now. So we even have a kind of retro perspective on the most recent version of Ocarina of Time. It almost goes without saying, and this is one of those games, it's almost, you know, in some ways it's kind of intimidating to take on because as of now, that's April 2016, this is still Metacritic's highest rated video game uh, with a score of 99. It's the second highest of all time on game rankings with a 97.54% average. It sits between the two Super Mario Galaxy games, which we covered in podcast issue 125 and just ahead of Grand Theft Auto 5, which we're going to cover in podcast issue 238. It was the first ever title to receive a perfect score in Famitsu of 40 out of 40. It was the third Edge 10 after Super Mario 64 and the first Gran Turismo. It received perfect review scores from egm gamespot and ign and of course as you will all know has appeared in numerous game of the year awards and subsequent uh, game of all time type lists both those compiled by critics and voted for by readers uh, but it should be noted there was a little criticism around even at the time even despite all the praise that was lavished upon it. So uh, reviewers noted that some graphical elements did not perform as well as Banjo-Kazooie, which had come out six months earlier. Um, IGN said that the frame rate and textures of Ocarina of Time weren't as good as those of Banjo-Kazooie, particularly in the marketplace of Hyrule Castle, which is a sort of pre-rendered area. And that was described as blurry. And I remember even at the time thinking, yeah, those pre-rendered areas looked pretty, pretty kind of skanky compared to the rest of the game. Um, interestingly, since the, the game was re-released, obviously it's been re-reviewed by certain outlets and the GameCube version averages under 90%, 89.77%, but uh, opinion picked up a bit for the revised 3DS version as the review scores brought it back up to a very healthy 93.89%, but perhaps tellingly it no longer you know, commands the sort of 97, 98, 99 type scores it was getting at the time. Uh, and the sales, needless to say, were extremely strong. It sold 2 million copies during its first 39 days on sale, uh, ended up selling 7.6 million cartridges. That's This is the N64 version. Um, as of right now, as we understand it, is the second best-selling game in a series, probably not including digital downloads, uh, uh, which is behind Twilight Princess. Obviously, that's largely because the Wii was such a huge-selling console. Now, thanks for listening to all that. But joining me in this issue of the podcast, we have Darren Gargett. Hello. Carl Moon. Hey, guys. And returning Zelda guest, Leah Haydu. Hello. Hello. Uh, sorry for introducing you all so late there. That's, a, that's, uh, that's, that's my bad. But now here we are. Let's uh, get straight into Ocarina of Time and our personal histories with the game, starting with uh, Leah. So I got... My N64 was the first console that I ever bought with my own money, and um, I bought it in probably would have been the uh, the autumn or early winter of um, 1999, which would have been my, my first year at college, um, and somehow 
I never actually owned a cartridge copy of Ocarina of Time. Hmm. Um, I didn't come to it until pretty late on. Um, this has been kind of a, a theme for, for the yeah. uh, episodes that I've been on so far. And um, my, my first real Zelda game, the first one that I really got into and actually finished and you know spent a lot of time with, uh, would not have been until a little bit later with uh, Wind Waker. But I went back to the... Um, the GameCube port of Ocarina would, I, I think, have been the first time that I actually played any of it. And I played a little bit of it. I didn't actually finish it. I think I got somewhere, I, like, I got I got to the Deku Tree. I didn't get very far. And then I just mm. kind of trailed off, and I, I never really went back to it. Or I went back to, I would go back to it, but, again, not for very long. I'd just kind of get a little ways into it, and then I'd stop again. And then I'd get a little ways into it, and I'd stop again. And I'd, I'd go back every once in a while, but it just never really stuck. So I also tried again uh, when I got a Wii and it was out on the Wii Virtual Console. I thought, okay, well, surely this time I should I should really get into it. You know, by this time I have played more Zelda games. I really need to. This is this is supposed to be the Zelda game, so I really need to get into this. And I tried again, and the same thing kind of happened. I kind of bounced off of it. Um, I. It wasn't exactly that I didn't like it or that I had anything against it. I, it just didn't stick with me. So I um, picked it up with um, my 3DS again when I when I bought the 3DS. And it actually sat on my shelf for a really long time. And I didn't actually get around to playing it in full until not quite a year ago. So um, my first complete playthrough didn't really have any of the nostalgia that a lot of people associate mm. with Ocarina of Time. It's actually what uh, what actually inspired me to start uh, my my blog. Chalk one up for my, my self-promotion here. But um, because it was such a big title and it was such an important thing that I just never got to. And that, that seems yeah. to happen to me a lot. I kind of come back yeah. to things a long time after they were actually really popular and after they you know after they started to be that kind of uh, that kind of watershed moment in gaming or, or however you want to look at it. So that was kind of the big one that I, I had been meaning to check off my list or even just to get on my list forever. Um, and that, that would have been the first time that I ever really played it through. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I stand with it. I, I, it took me a really long time to actually get into playing it. Mm. And then my, my first complete was, uh, was not even the original version of the game. It was, uh, it was considerably later. Carl, were you there at the time with your N64 and your £50 clutched in your hand? Uh, it was, uh, I think it actually cost a bit more than £50. Um, but it's, yeah, I was uh, sort of one of these day one owners of the N64. And, it's, you know, obviously after the original launch titles, it very quickly became about you know, Ocarina of Time. It, it was everywhere. And uh, being an avid Edge magazine reader at the time, they were sort of the ones that were really you know, tooting this horn and, and really pushing it hard. And um, this was a long time before their gold-covered Perfect 10 score uh, title, which at the time was a lot rarer than it is now. I mean, it's still a rare score, but it was a huge deal. And they they would often report on other magazines, which is almost unheard of now. And, and they'd reported on the Famitsu 40, which, you know, was the first one to ever get it. And it was starting to get this kind of media praise that, I can't remember reading before, uh, not not certainly uh, to to that standard. And it, it, you you know you couldn't pick up a multi format magazine without this game. So this this was the big deal. Uh, 
And while it was probably the biggest since Super Mario sixty four, yeah, I mean, that yeah, was very similar. Mario sixty four was obviously built around the launch of a console and a whole that whole sixty four bit thing. This was something that was being you know pushed on it on its own right as purely just a title and not something that was selling us a, a system. And um, I became more and more fascinated. And I'd, I'd played Zelda games before. Um, I'd, I'd never finished a Zelda game before, and I wasn't really what you'd call a crazy fan, but became something I'm, I had to have and you know I excitedly ticked the days down and it was you know put it on my list top of my list this has to be my Christmas title and um, yeah it, it, it was just something that you couldn't ignore it any longer um, and it was I, it's strange because it's always the Christmas I associate as the Christmas with gold because whilst we never got the gold cartridges everything that seemed to be pushing this game was gold you know uh we had an electronics boutique at the time um and they had a whole section that was just decked out in gold advertising this game coming you know you've got to pre-order it soon uh lay down your money and the magazines were all gold front covers and it, it was just i've not seen anything like that in print-based media since that that got me that excited for a title so um yeah i, I was you know whilst i didn't sort of lay down my money for a a, a release it was that was my Christmas uh, main present of uh, 1998. So sort of at launch uh, in that it was bought and it was just sat waiting um, many, many weeks <laughs> until, until I got to play it at Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was only a, it was only a few weeks yeah. before Christmas it was actually released. Um, and so, what's your playing history with it? Did you did you you know rush through it straight away? Did it, did you bounce off it at all? Have you been back to any other versions or releases of it? Yeah, I, I immediately uh, tore off the cellophane off the box. Um, every every other Christmas present had to wait, uh, and that included. Uh, Half-Life, which, you know, I've discussed on a previous podcast, which was kind of a big deal for me. Um, and mm. Ocarina of Time went straight in the console, and I probably played it non-stop until I had to get off for the Christmas dinner. Um, but it, it, it's sort of an odd one for me in that uh, the formula that Zelda games tend to follow, uh, I find them a slow burner, and I kind of struggle, and I get distracted easily. And there are a few games throughout my history that I've preferred to play as sort of a, a co-op affair. Play a bit, watch a bit, talk it through, uh, discuss, yeah. you know, a friend plays or a family member plays. And then and mm. sort of we rotate in and out. Um, and those would probably be the Metal Gear Solid games and Ocarina of Time, which I sort of tag-teamed through with my father. Um and you know, yeah. I've mentioned my father playing games on on this podcast numerous times, um, and Ocarina of Time is a strange one in that he completed it and it was the best game he'd ever played, and for about a year nothing was as good, and he stopped playing games until Fallout Three. So that hmm. gives you an idea of how highly thought of uh, Ocarina of Time was from my father's side, and playing with him was kind of contagious. But yeah, it was something that. Uh, I, I played gradually through with with my father. I, I, I didn't sort of burn through it as I have done with many games at, at that time. Um, it was, you know, I, maybe a, an hour or two, and a couple of nights a week. Um, you know, I'd play a bit, he'd play a bit, and we we. It was more the sort of build around the discussion and, and and talking about what would happen throughout the uh, dungeons with him. So yeah, it was. It's a it's an odd uh, first playthrough for a game for me because it was the first one that I'd ever played like that. Darren, you were uh, big into N64 fandom, mm. Rare and Nintendo at this stage, so you must have been very excited. Yeah, I was working in the uh, local game shop at the time, or at least I was hanging around. 
And, you know, the build-up to this game was <clears throat> unmissable, as we mentioned. You know, N64 magazine, uh, NOM, there was just, it was everywhere, you couldn't miss it. And even in the lead-up to it, you saw, I didn't know it at the time, but kind of iterations of the game sort of evolve in front of you in, in screenshot form. And I was like, that's that Zelda game that I previously dismissed. Because uh, I mentioned before how I dismissed the box art on the SNES mm-hmm. because it had a sword and a shield and it didn't really appeal to me. But this time around, I was, I was older, I, was, I guess I was more mature, I'm not too sure. Um, and I said to my mate Will, I was like, man, are you excited for that new Zelda game? He's like, nah, I'm not really interested in it being 3D. And that really confused me because he'd, he was such a fan of Mario going from 2D to 3D that I thought he, as much as he loved Link to the Past, I thought he'd jump straight on the ship. And he was like, nah, I'm not going to bother. It doesn't look like they're going to do the game justice. So I thought, well, I'm going to get it and you know, I'll, I'll lend it to you. Um, which I never did because he, he just was never interested. Anyway, um, yeah, so in this game shop, uh, it was like... It was, people were waiting for the box to turn up you know it was, it was it was quite a moment and there was like five of the gold cartridges from australia that we imported oh, nice. and, and, and obviously the people who worked there got first dibs so that was me and some other guys who worked there and <clears throat> within minutes all of them were just gone and for a, a machine that reportedly at the time wasn't selling very well like the, the games that people were waiting for like they just sold like you know like well like goldeneye basically and it, it surprised me because this game was never really on my radar until until quite late i guess in, in the series lifespan at that point because there'd been like three or four games and yeah so and um, yeah played it you know all the way through and you know, they did nearly everything I could. Um, and then I bought the 3DS version. Um, but in between that, I also pre-ordered the Japanese Wind Waker, which got me the Master Quest disc in Japanese. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, but I played a bit of the Master Quest. <laughs> we'll talk about yeah. that later on. We will, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I played through the 3DS one to completion. And, uh, yeah, and I've dabbled with it here and there, but I've only really played through it three times, I think. Mm. Yeah, uh, I remember the the buzz coming into this one. As I mentioned on the Link's Awakening podcast, I kind of drifted away from Link's Awakening on the uh, on my Game Boy Pocket. So my previous uh, and my favourite Zelda experience was uh, Link to the Past on the SNES, which would have been three and a half years ago before Ocarina came out. Um, this game had been uh, seen uh, since probably that that summer of ninety five, I think that was its first showing at Shoshinkai or E three or somewhere. Um, there was some early footage of uh, of this polygonal link fighting uh, a shiny shiny looking uh, knight of some kind, one of the enemies from the game. Um, and you know, bits and bobs were seen throughout the next uh, lengthy period. The, I think it was. I think the game was yeah delayed, and obviously there was the news about about it changing from a disc game. Which I can't even remember if I was thinking at the time. Well, obviously I'm going to get a 64 DD to play Zelda. I can't remember if I'd ever had that sort of conversation. I was probably thinking. I think I, I think I was thinking I was relieved that it was it had changed to a cartridge release because it just meant that I could just go and buy the cartridge. Um, when it was finally about to come out, I remember there were there were strong rumours of shortages because this game was you know they obviously they were making millions of these cartridges for various regions, um, but process uh, you know manufacturing for these for these things being what it was, um, there was uh, it may have been PR and, and hype and whatever, but there was there was some talk that there wouldn't be enough to go around. You know, shops like with a console launch, shops wouldn't have many many copies of of uh, Ocarina of Time, so. Um, come launch day, I was not expecting to get it. In fact, um, I remember I was at work. My girlfriend at the time wasn't. Um, and I think I was talking about having it as my main Christmas present. You know, this was a, as I recall, it was a £49.99 
cartridge in in virgin or you know wherever else back in the days when we had dozens of game shops um but as it was um she went into town and um she had a conversation with with somebody behind the games counter at virgin um and apparently i think it was a copy that had been reserved but so, but the person hadn't gone to collect it and uh, you know i think maybe they maybe they ended up very disappointed because i'm not sure they'd been given more than like half a day to go and get it but they <laughs> they sold it to her anyway so uh, i may have i may have broken someone's heart if you're listening out there i'm terribly sorry uh, it wasn't actually me it was my girlfriend um but she came back and uh, and, and gave it to me and i don't remember the the early sessions of, of playing it that well if i'm honest um but i do remember the next few months it was it was a kind of odd time in my life because actually I, I think before that game was completed I'd split up with that girlfriend so there were kind of other things going on um, it was nothing to do with Zelda we'd just been together a long time and uh, um, but I do remember various sessions of the game including one like Carl's talking about a sort of co-op session of and I'm pretty sure it was the Water Temple um, with my friend Pete and I think that's why I've always had I've, I've never had the, the difficult memories of the Water Temple. I've always had fond memories of it because I think I did it in one session with a friend and we, we worked it out together over the course of about an hour and it, and it, and it went beautifully. But, yeah, I played it through uh, probably over the next month or month and a half, probably, you know, about 40 hours plus, including doing virtually everything, maybe not quite everything, everything. I'm not sure I ever did all the pose to get the fourth bottle, for instance. Um, and since then, I've been back, looked at, uh, you know the first few hours a few times on the gamecube version um but i picked up the uh the 3d version uh as soon as i got my uh 3ds actually i previously played it uh ben ford had kindly lent me um his 3ds and ocarina 3d and i'd had a look and i thought well that looks really nice now doesn't it but yeah um but i didn't get a 3ds until the following year um it was one of the earlier games that i bought but i hadn't played it through until the last couple of weeks and i just finished it uh, a couple of days ago so that was only my second full playthrough ever and again i didn't do everything i did probably about you know 66 to 75 percent of all the stuff you can do in it um but I still spent a good healthy number of hours on it i think my total play time is uh well into the well into the 30-something hours mode anyway. One of the strong memories I do have about playing it for the first time, and I think this has become kind of iconic, is the attract mode, the title screen. And I remember thinking at the time that it was... I, I actually was a bit disappointed by how understated it was. Like, I remember thinking, where's the fanfare? Where's the bold brass? Where's the, where's the kind of, you know, uh, heroics? Um, but actually, over time, I've learned to love this attract mode, this title screen, more and more and more to the point that even now when I play the 3DS version, I find it difficult to just turn the game on and, and just start playing because it, that pastoral tune and that and that lighting and the horse whinny, I think it's absolutely magic and it, it's, it just sucks me right into the game world that I want to spend time in. How about, how about the rest of you? Yeah, I've only just um, recently learnt that the the tune played while he's riding the horse over Highball Field is actually the mm. same tune that Mario plays when he plays his walk whistle. They're the walk same whistle, jingle, yeah. and, which also know, appeared in one of the earlier Zelda's. Zelda it? games, yeah, it's like yeah. It kind of it all kind of links up, hey, mm. but yeah, it all kind of uh, comes together. And it's like that's a wind instrument. Mario plays a walk whistle. It's it's crazy how Nintendo mm. subtly link their games together. But yeah, I had no expectations of Zelda as an introduction to the game. You know, looking mm. at Link to the Past now, where it had the, well, in my head, trumpets and cymbal, uh, cymbals clashing everywhere. But yeah, this is so understated. It's kind of, 
dark. It's kind of a bit moody. It's kind of sunsetty or sunrise, and it's just plodding through the field. And I, I didn't really know how you know how this works in the game. You know, I, I never really thought that I was going to get a horse, even though he's clearly riding it on the screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, ne- I never saw it as a spoiler. You know, it's just it, kind the of the horse is optional, of course. Hmm, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, uh, essential at the same time. But it, it, I never felt like, oh, they've ruined that part of the story for me, which later on I, I did have several moments of that game ruined for me because it's just so popular. But the horse was yeah. never never one mm. of them. It always felt like, oh, that's just a really nice introduction. And yeah. when yeah. I turn it on now, even today, when I was checking out the Master Quest uh, Deku Tree, that intro, it just sends uh, you know the tingles down your spine and the, the mm. hair raises. It's ridiculous. How about for those of you, uh, well, the, Leah, the, that of the one of us, the one of us who were, uh, who wasn't uh, who wasn't there in '98 in the same way, so doesn't have the same. Uh, does that opening work for you as a thing, or is it? Yeah, I definitely good? think it does. Um, I I don't know that it it makes sense but i don't know that you know it makes sense until you've played a little bit now i i, I don't think that that necessarily mm. ruins it like i, I don't think mm. that the, i don't think that anybody who really was interested in playing zelda in the first place is going to look at that title screen and go eh, nope i don't think so this is this is not clearly not something that i want to be into but I, I don't i don't know i i think that once you've been in hyrule field and you have done some of your running back and forth i I think that's a big part of it and i think that just being able to see that before you kind of get into the nitty-gritty of doing your your quests and everything that you need to do i i think i think that once you kind of have a little better feel then it it just it feels right it feels right to have maybe not everything fighting at once and every and, and every symbol clashing mm. and every uh, big fanfare like 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 we were saying before um it, it's it's kind of nice i think it works yeah i think it's uh, i think it's really lovely and obviously one of the things that uh, was quite a big deal at the time we talked a lot on previous podcasts about games from this console and you know everyone everyone knows the issues that the the n64 had with uh textures uh resolution and and things like that but um for me at the time the original graphics and bear in mind these ran at 320 pixels by 240 pixels this is by today's standards you know just incredibly low resolution but at the time I thought, by and large, apart from those pre-rendered areas we talked about, like uh, outside the Temple of Time, um, this was just a gorgeous world to be in. Um, For me, I loved the fact that it actually, um, something for me that the 3DS version, although, you know, is, uh, uh, I don't know if actually if it is, I think it is higher resolution, but not wildly so, because those 3DS screens are actually quite low resolution, but obviously the textures, they're a lot more detailed and sharper and that sort of thing. Um, but it, I think the 3DS version actually almost misses the sort of that slight haze, that slight fuzziness around everything because it, it sort of, you know, uh, it could sort of added to this kind of dreamlike atmosphere for me. But obviously going back to, you can play, um, you know, I, I haven't played the original resolution version for a long, 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 long time. Um, and if you play it now on Wii or Wii U, you're actually playing a double resolution version. So it doesn't look quite as chunky as it once did. But yeah, so 
I, I think the 3DS version still looks pretty nice, although having now gone straight onto the Majora's Mask 3DS version, you can see that they've they've kind of done a lot more to to that. Um, but I still think it's, even though the, the world is obviously low polygon in, in by today's standards, like the rivers basically go around corners and, you know, um, everything's built around bricks and blocks. At the time, you know, we, we were only, we'd only fairly recently had tomb raider and things like that so it was a pretty it, it looked pretty smooth and organic and and um at the time it was it was impressive for me anyway at the time i remember being blown away by uh, a, a couple of things that i'd never seen um mainly in, in the opening setup the the first bit is obviously when you see it floating around the town um and it it goes through that sort of the wooden paneled fence yeah it's the camera transition through there um mm. i remember being blown away that you know this it felt like we were seeing this this grand scale even though it was only a small thing and yeah i constantly go on about how little things are the things that always blow me away the most in video games and um that that was just a moment that absolutely took my breath away uh at, at the start and got me really excited and wanting to play it um, and, and the second was uh, more in the lead up to the game when we constantly saw, uh, and obviously Darren didn't, but Epona uh, riding around in the fields. And um, we'd ridden horses in games before, but never anything in sort of a controllable 3D environment, um, sort of on 2D flat planes. And I, mm. I always remember having this thought in my mind that that's cool that we've got a horse, but it's going to feel really clunky. And it's strange because I never really ever seem to feel that way about games. You know, you mentioned Tomb Raider, which was incredibly bull, but even at that time felt clunky to move around. And Resident mm. Evil, the same. Um, and whilst Mario was sort of really beautifully smooth to control, in, in my mind I was always, yeah, but we're going big on a scale across fields. And, and then sort of when you see him moving and, and it felt, or at least looked, like the most organic thing I'd seen in gaming. And um, it's one of those memories where you think back and you go, that was incredible, it was mind-blowing, there's nothing. And then you you see it now and you go, well, it has obviously aged quite a lot. But just mm. just the the idea and the concept of, of, of seeing that horse uh, and being excited for it was just... Uh, revelatory for me for for that game um, in, in terms of uh, of the visuals and you know you talk back to this three twenty and two forty and I'm pretty sure you the, the, Leon you're the only person longing for the N sixty four blur in a game um, to be back but it's only in this case it's it's just uh, yeah and and I'm glad it's not there on the three DS version but I I just feel like it misses it 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 added something then maybe it wouldn't now you know that that actually kind of runs a. Uh, uh... Uh, almost at the end, a little bit counter to what, not not even counter, just kind of answers one of my questions. Um, I was going to say that I, I can't necessarily speak to this directly, and this might be something that those of you who have played both the, um, the N64 version and the 3DS version in particular uh, could, could, verify whether I'm I'm on target at all with this or not. But it almost seems like the effect of having the 3DS version kind of sharpened up and, and having the visuals not completely overhauled, but cleaned up almost a little bit. Yeah. The effect to me almost seems like 
bringing it into line with what people's memories of it would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if yeah. that makes sense. Yes. Like, you, you always have a picture, like, the example that would be more, more in line for me would be Final Fantasy VII. Like, you have a picture in your head because you have these memories of this game, and you have a picture in your head of what it is, but if you actually go back and look at the original, because I've been watching some speedruns and just videos of the original N64 version, and I mean, the graphics look great for what they were, but they're not, they're not modern graphics, you know? You, you can't judge yeah, them by yeah. the same type of scale necessarily so i I think that the 3ds version maybe pulls it up a little bit to to kind of mesh more with what people's memories might have been at that point especially if they hadn't played it since the n64 version if they if they didn't do any of the the ports or the uh, or the gamecube version or any of those yeah i i think um I think most people would agree probably that Grezzo or Grezzo, I've never been quite sure. Um, it's a company set up by uh, Koichi Ishii, who's uh, one of the main men behind the, the Mana series, the Seiken Densetsu games for Square. Um, I think they did what you could call a very um, sensitive and tasteful job in updating it for the 3DS. So, you know, keeping uh, keeping a lot of things intact without, you know, without um, damaging the 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 memory i think there are some slightly more controversial changes to majora's mask but we'll talk about that in a month um but yeah uh, again just for me this this i i remember just even though we we'd had n64s for a couple of years at this point and been playing you know 3d polygonal games for quite some time at this point um i just remember in this game just it was a game where I would use the the first person look mechanic just to stand there and look around a lot. And it's, you know, it seems hard to imagine now because it, you know, it does look so basic and simplistic um, compared to modern games, but it was stuff like the, the details, you know, the fish and the bugs and things uh, floating around the, the, um, the, the sort of reflections on the water, the, 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 the light in this game, the, the thing that always struck me, like that we're going to talk a bit quite a bit about Hyrule Field and what it is like this is perhaps uh, we're going to find that this is one of the most controversial elements of of Ocarina of Time now is actually traversing the world um but back at the time it didn't matter that you weren't doing much in Hyrule Field because you were in Hyrule Field and the way it transitioned from day to night was breathtaking and it, and it's not just the fact that it did transition from day to night it's the fact that they got the the tone and the quant- the quality of the lighting so that it evoked that feeling it was it was incredible at the time and it doesn't I, I can't imagine it would have anything like the same impact to a new player now the ocarina of time for me did a lot of firsts i think for, for my own personal gaming experiences like and the golden eye revolution for me really got me into gaming you know i was playing games before that but like playing an rpg which i've never really played before but playing it like on the n64 which i was so heavily invested in emotionally it was just it was something else i'd never seen a game have such a long intro but managed to keep my attention for that long like usually mm. i just walk off and go oh, just go outside and i don't know throw a brick for a window or something <laughs> no it's just like yeah okay cool i'm gonna put my i'm gonna put some emotional investment in this introduction watch navi do its lakitu-esque flying around the city or town and bump his head on the wooden panels as carl said and it kind of just captures your imagination kind of like how a disney film would or something like that it really all the noises and all the sounds around you you know when everyone's waving at you and you get the hey listen from uh, and you see the little guy humping a rock it all just kind of makes you laugh it pulls you in and you're like this is what i imagine disney cartoons to be like in video game form and yeah it immediately clicked with me and i was like right um i'm in i'm in for the long run and uh 
yeah, heading out into Hyrule Field, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but literally just sitting on the wall that is uh, the first wall you find, and you see all the Stalfoss running around you, and I'm like, what's going on? But then you go in first person, you see the moon above you going from left to right, or you know, east to west, I don't know. Very fast, isn't it, the day size? It's it incredibly is. quick, but, yeah. But for a first, it was like, games oh, are doing this thing, like, this is amazing. And yeah, yeah it's... It's going to be hard for me to separate then from now in terms of how yeah, it's aged totally. because this game for me done a lot of firsts and I was like, I, you know, it, all the tens seemed justified at the time. The sound uh, in Hyrule Field especially because the day-night cycle doesn't really happen when you're in uh, like an instanced area. So sort of no, like it town. freezes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it kind of stands still. But when you're in the Hyrule Field and you hear either the howl or the cuckoos, the, the chickens, mm. the, that it's so simple but it's so effective the flute signalling the morning is still oh, magic yeah, it's um, just perfect yeah, I, w- I want to talk about the sound a lot um, because I think it's so important now while for me it, it always I was often frustrated by N64 sound because although there was some astonishing work done by Nintendo's people and by Rare's people and others I was always frustrated by the fact that you could tell that it wasn't the most powerful or sophisticated sound chip you know instruments very seldom sounded like they're supposed to sound in some in some cases things sounded even less like the instruments they were supposed to represent than the the super nintendo had um and and you'll definitely hear some of that in uh in ocarina of time but having said that again now i've been back obviously nostalgia is a powerful thing and i can't i'm not at any stage attempting to deny nostalgia when i talk about the things i like about ocarina of time because it's it's pointless um but actually I really appreciate the fact that they didn't do much. Uh, well, they did basically nothing to the audio of the 3DS version, apart from the post-credits ver- uh, music, which is just for that version, which actually features orchestral instruments. The rest of the game's sound is identical to how it was. So it has, you have quite a limited number of sound effects, as as you've mentioned before, Darren. Uh, sound effects are actually shared across multiple things, uh, slightly pitched up and pitched down. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the usual garbled speech, which means no actual uh, speech, or that's something they mostly kept in Zelda games, apart from Navi um, and the odd exception. Uh, but the the sound of the game is now just completely synonymous with the sound of that world. And, and again, that slight unreality almost makes it work better for me than if it was this you know high definition high fidelity recorded in a studio orchestra sound the fact that it's this n64 slightly odd midi-ish sound kind of works for me and the sound effects you know limited as they are uh link shouts as well and on mm. all that sort of thing and the deku scrubs make their noise and the sculptures make the same noise and so on and so forth but going back i've really uh reappreciated Koji Kondo's score I, I can't like I don't think I would have said before that this had one of my favorite soundtracks but going back I realized that it has it totally has it's and the the music for like there's the, the most creepy music for the forest temple really puts the willies up me and by a, a complete reverse the the music in Zora's domain is just the most meltingly gorgeous thing it just ah, it just sounds like it's like the musical embodiment of relaxation and a holiday but yet still has a slight undertone of sinisterness (laughs) i don't it's just i just think kondo really demonstrates his genius we've obviously quite limited tools here i I think that yeah he's done such a good job that he kind of had to use the same 
templates for later Zelda games. Like it's not like the first 3D Zelda he kind of made a, a half step and then he, you know, with Majora's Mask or mm. the next game, the Wind Waker, like the, the then perfected it. It was kind of like he kind of got it on on the first try. And then if you don't get it in the later Zelda games afterwards, you, when you walk into a shop, for example, you don't mm. get the do 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 do. You you're kind of a bit disappointed if it doesn't happen. You're like, oh, I mm-hmm. want it to be like the N64 game, mm. and it's it, it's a bit of a shame, but also because it's so good. You know that's why that happens. I don't know how he done it, but yeah, every time you walk into Kakarika Village, you, you can hear it in your head before you've even seen it. Like your mm-hmm. mind's eye and your mind's ears, I guess. You know that they 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 merge together. You know, like you say, synonymously, and it's just the, the yeah, subtlety. Magic. The subtlety to it definitely ages it better. Um, which isn't always the case with all games. And I remember at the time being incredibly frustrated because. Uh, I was so blown away by something like Final Fantasy VII across its several discs and you know the the score and uh, how often it could change with all the sound effects and then you're playing this mm. Zelda game and you're kind of limited uh, with you know mm. the lack of speech um, the, the the it's a really subtle score that I definitely appreciate far more now um, and it mm. also it, it goes towards selling the you know the attract screen a lot better because you spend so much time in the fields where there are sort of bigger lulls compared to the dungeons uh, certainly bigger lulls than we'd seen in previous uh, Zelda games um, yes. and uh, you play something like Banjo-Kazooie which I've been playing lately um, and there is so much sound going on that it becomes more of an annoyance, whereas I can go and play an Ocarina of Time now and sort of really just appreciate it um, for the lack of uh, sounds, almost. It, it's it's kind of strange that it's actually a better sounding and a better scored game for reeling back on it and being really controlled and measured with what they did at the time. Um, and it, it's sort of what it's the one area where to be sort of well not really disappointed but to be underwhelmed by that uh in 1998 and then in 2016 sort of be really appreciative of it and mm. for me it's probably of all the scores the most consistent um i don't think it's the most special because that would probably go towards something like majora's mask which is really out there on some of the tracks um mm. but as a whole i adore the whole scoring of ocarina of time for its uh, for its subtlety Hmm. Leah, how did you feel about the music coming to it more recently? It's it's interesting to, to kind of hear all of this just from that viewpoint because it, I think what surprised me about it the most was how you hear the echoes of it in later Zelda games like a lot. It, yeah. you, you really, you really, even if it's not the the same music directly you can hear just like little pieces of phrases and just uh, remixes and and things kind of popping up almost where you don't expect them and it it knowing that all of that came from this one game is really interesting it it, um i i think that it's it's maybe the most Zelda-y zelda if that kind of makes sense i i know that's kind of a poor description poor descriptor i know what you mean but yeah, it just it feels the most quintessential to the series in that way. Like everything feels like it belongs in a Zelda game. 
Mm-hmm. I was once uh, watching uh, the Channel 4 spin-off uh, E4 uh, on on UK television and when they link TV shows together they have like a, the, the E and the 4 together dancing around in cartoon fashion and they have Ocarina of Time music in the background and, I, and because I was playing so much Ocarina of Time you know at the time I kind of like am I hearing that as a thing <laughs> but like I've done researches like just now for example and there are one or two people asking the same question and mm. I'd like to see it again in visual form but I you know the carnival from Mario 64 as well they played that during an E4 link and I was like am I have I played too much N64 recently or is that an actual thing I wonder if so, they paid <laughs> yeah that's that's the first bit of my question like, are they allowed to use that <laughs> but oh, yeah I think technically Channel 4 is a public service broadcaster so even though it's commercial so I think they can probably get away with that sort of thing anyway it was a it was a weird surreal moment of like <laughs> i'm hearing nintendo music maybe i should seek help <laughs> right yeah um now we haven't dwelt too much on the timeline stuff but i think uh, this one's worth mentioning just quickly because uh it was at the time it was set uh the earliest of all the zelda games up to that point um, by some ages um, but now canonically at this point it uh, exists behind Skyward Sword, the Minish Cap and Four Swords um, but the end of this game depending on what you consider or, or treat or depending on what happened at the end of this game in theoretical alternate scenarios uh, there there are three timelines that split off of this and become the official Zelda timelines known as the decline of hyrule the twilight realm and a new world depending on whether you beat ganon um and then and then uh, or not or uh, and from there it's whether you uh you take the timeline from child link going back or from adult link going forward so um yes they did that in 2011 um that's all out there as i say back to uh more pressing matters link himself then so we've uh, obviously up to this point we've talked about link as a 2d character uh, either top down or side on in certain instances one game and certain bits of the handheld game but here we are in a third person 3d world um, and this presented a developer with a number of challenges um, and i think one of the reasons that this game was probably ho- so highly reviewed at the time is because it seemed to almost effortlessly and, and brilliantly come up with ways of meeting the challenges of having what seem now like standard parts of gaming, third-person combat, third-person movement with enemies in a world that can surround you and all that sort of thing. But at the time, perhaps hadn't been done so successfully thinking about Lara Croft's auto point and shoot guns and, and that sort of thing. That was the sort of level of sophistication we'd got up to perhaps. Um, and obviously this was, uh, you know, melee combat as well. So Nintendo brought in uh, Z targeting, holding down a trigger um, to e- either uh, uh, press and lock on to uh, you could either tab it or hold it to lock on to enemies focus on that enemy it would go into a widescreen view and uh, auto kind of auto aim you, rather than having you have to navigate platforms as well uh, it took the jump button out of your hands and made it an auto thing which i remember when i read about it i remember thinking well how's that still a game if, if it auto jumps and, it, turn, and yeah, it turns out here. it works it works all right <laughs> um uh 
and yeah and they managed to i think also you know i kind of even though i don't necessarily use all the all the techniques that are available in the game for the for the combat as well as the the stab and the uh, the jumping thrust and the the backflip you've also got two different kinds of spin you've got a quick spin and a charge spin and then there's all the usual little bits and bobs that nintendo put in um, as they would have put into one of their 2D games, like the fact that uh, certain uh, certain things will have certain effects on certain enemies. So items in your inventory, like um, a Deku nut, if you're fighting a ghost, a Poe, and it and it disappears, you can throw a Deku nut to the ground, and it will make it rematerialize. So you don't have to wait for that to happen. Certain enemies that walk on the ground, if you slam the ground with the hammer, which is otherwise useless in a certain area, will flip those enemies and flip them back, um, and all that sort of stuff's in there now playing this now generally you're never fighting more than maybe two or three enemies at a time and i'd say it feels quite sparse but um generally i still think you know i didn't find playing it in 2016 i didn't find it troubling i didn't find it a challenge or frustrating so although it's perhaps not as um i didn't find it as kind of overwhelmingly special as i did back you know almost 20 years ago um its functionality remains. How about for you? I think that um, this is probably coming coming into this game without any kind of nostalgia or any kind of real prior experience with it. I think that this is probably the section where I had the most trouble with the game. Okay, and it it wasn't even that big of a problem. Like I don't mean to present it as you know uh, this ruined everything, but. I think that the the biggest issue that I have here is that I have seen, before really coming to this, I had seen all of this so much in other games where it has had the time to be more refined, and it has had the time to kind of get better from from what it initially was. And the technology as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. As somebody who writes and and podcasts and speaks critically about games from time to time, I can recognize right away how incredibly important so much of this is because it's the first time like you're saying that a lot of this the targeting and the auto jumping and and a lot of the the things that you see through this game it's the first time that a lot of these have shown up in any kind of significant context but it kind of feels like the first time a little bit they feel a Mm -hmm. little bit rough they feel like they they may be well, like they're prototypes, like they're being tested out, like like there isn't something that they have to fall back on and say, okay, well, this is how people have done it before, so this is how we should incorporate it. They had to do all this innovating in order to get the results that they wanted, and, and maybe sometimes it didn't come out quite exactly how they might have envisioned it. And even in just further Zelda games down the line, you can see how they iterated on that, and you can see how they made it a lot more accessible and a, a lot um, a lot more user-friendly in some cases. And in some cases, it's pretty close to what it is right here in Ocarina. Mm. And, you know, a lot of other games picked up a lot of other things from this as well. But here, to me, just coming to it after having had those other experiences and after having seen the the more the more polished versions of it on down the line, I, I had a little bit of trouble coming back to that. Sure. Yeah, I'd recently played uh, Twilight Princess HD on the on the Wii U, so I had the uh, added bonus of a, of the gamepad, you know, the inventory on down the bottom. Mm. And previous Zelda games before that, Majora's Mask 3D, Ocarina of Time 3D, I had the second screen to manage my stuff. And I played the Master Quest uh, Deku Tree today, actually, of the, of the day of recording, and I really struggled to actually manage Link and his infantry. Now, I was playing with the Wave Bird, and it's kind of got N64 buttons on the screen, so that was a bit confusing, you know, you, you mm-hmm. using the C-stick to, to do stuff, and it's not great. 
But yeah, having the just the, the the non-ability to have a second screen really kind of threw me off, and I was like, oh no, I have to pause the game now, and like, and then you have to you have to set it to that button and then come back into the game. It kind of broke the immersion for me a little bit, and mm. but I remember at the time thinking that you know the Z targeting was it, it kind of rocked my world a little bit when the the girl sitting on the on the shop kind of balcony on the ledge, and she said, oh, I'm up here, and I was like, this is amazing, like the, the camera's mm. kind of all working for me. But the, and the auto jumping, like you said, and you know Leon and Carl, that, that, that when when I read about it, it was like, how's this going to work? Because I played so much Mario sixty four, where you have yeah. every button, you know, every every jump at your at your. Well, will. that's the game, isn't it? Mario that's, is like pressing the A button at the right time. That's, that's it. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it. So when you have that taken away from you from the same developer, you're like, yeah. what are they doing? Why? How's that going to work? Yeah. yeah, it really threw me off. Yeah. But the auto jumping now still feels pretty decent. I, you know, I kind of know how to manipulate Link to sort of do backflips over fences and stuff because I've yeah, played yeah. It too many times. But the, the, he felt a little bit too sensitive for me, um, which is kind of opposite to the recent mm. Twilight Princess where he felt a bit too sluggish. It's, it's kind of weird. Um, but overall, yeah, um, the Z-Targeting hasn't aged as well as, it, as I thought it would have done. And how about... Um how about the sort of yeah the actual enemies and combat specifically uh one of our correspondents later will hear from uh saying that they felt um underwhelmed having come from the early zeldas um an american correspondent so was very perhaps you know uh, i think i feel generally like more of our u.s correspondents are, are familiar with the earlier zeldas than than we are they were kind of a bigger deal over there um and we were talking about when we when we went back to play that um you know we would get kind of bogged down in in the dungeons with multiple enemy sprites in one room and this game just doesn't really allow that you know i think this game's probably more about spatial puzzles there are there are there is combat but even the combat generally is either a kind of something a nuisance to clear something out the way or it's a boss fight which is a puzzle unto itself generally um but you know those rooms where two uh, two of those lizard dudes or or two stalfos come in um how, you know, do you do you find those enjoyable to play, or are they just you know? Would you rather just get on with solving the puzzles? I think oftentimes the fights are the puzzles. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, there are core elements where fighting um, are the actual puzzles themselves, but they're the ones that I don't enjoy. Like, I think part of the reason why getting on a pony and moving around the field and stuff is because I felt free. I felt free of certain limitations, and I found. As I said, those elements of targeting and moving and fighting, um, and sort of that limitation of going into 3D at the time, and it being very early and struggling with system specifications and stuff, that when that kind of stuff played a real impact on it, that's when the game hit lows. And, you know, this game came after um, we'd already had a link to the past, and this is where you get the difference between a game like Ocarina of Time, which has aged and something like A Link to the Past, which is timeless. Um, And for a lot of people, it feels like that gap just gets bigger and bigger, where A Link to the Past stays as a quality title, and sort of the aged elements of Ocarina of Time hurt it more. Um, And I know that, obviously, we reference all the time that early 3D games really struggle uh, in, in ways now, but when we're going through sort of the dungeons, the elements that aren't in combat, I thought at the time were fantastic. And, and when it did come to combat, that was the number one reason 
why I played this game as a sort of a, a co-op step in, step out with someone else. We should talk about the ocarina. Um, it is in the title. And, um, you know, this is a musical game. It's a game where music plays a huge part. Um, we've already talked about uh, the soundtrack, which we all seem to enjoy a lot. Um, but the ocarina is uh, is a tool. It's a device. It's a, it's a MacGuffin. And it's perhaps your most powerful, you know, item in a way, um, especially by later in the game where it's your... It's your. I mean, Epona becomes redundant, really, um, because there is no there is no point to travelling across Hyrule Field when you have a song which takes you to within uh, twenty five seconds of, of anywhere. Um, but I also, as well as actually playing the tunes, I still enjoy playing the first few notes of a tune and it going into the sort of the more fully formed um, pseudo orchestral version. But also, I remember um, just having a lot of fun at the time playing around with the little secret effects, so you can actually uh, you can add tremor low to the uh to the to the notes so you can pitch bend them um again just you know standing there with with the link uh polygons just you know rocking backwards and forwards but playing with this stuff uh you know nintendo allowing you to play in a in a game world um and also there's loads of secrets um you know dotted around the world places where you just need to pull out the ocarina and play a particular song you can you know fill up a pond full of water or you can make a sun fairy appear or all this stuff um and yeah the flute had appeared in previous uh, Zelda games and it was a it was a Mario thing as well but um this is where they kind of really brought this marriage of music and gaming and kind of brought it to the forefront and obviously we've seen it since in Wind Waker and, and other games it's, like that the manipulation of the sound through the ocarina was uh it, it made me laugh because it, I it always it always felt like the audio version of pulling Mario's face at the start of Mario sixty four. That's right, um, yeah, and yeah, I definitely. just that—that's the sort of that's the Nintendo elements that you know, for good or bad, or however I feel about certain systems or certain titles and whatnot. That's the reason I will always love Nintendo as a company because they're—it's those crazy, unexpected, fun things um that, that sort of make me smile and uh you know the we've on our kin rinse account we've actually uh retweeted a few people playing um other mario games on on the 3ds and and, and creating real songs out of them and and um, baker street it, yes by jerry rafferty as one we had <laughs> elements recently. like that just make me uh laugh careless whisper it, it, it's it's brilliant the careless whisper one was just phenomenal and and when you see people playing stuff um in games using stuff that, that Nintendo have put in it was wonderful and and just you, the first few times I was playing the ocarina obviously you play the correct tunes and you, you'd go about your business and you're like well that was a cool element and then you realise when you start pitch bending that's all you start doing is just playing these notes and, and just bending notes and it sounds like a racket but in your mind it's you know, you're just having a whale of a time I, I adored that element I think the most accessible thing they did with the ocarina is to not have it on rhythm with how the song goes. You can play it mm. as fast or as slow as you like. As long as you press the buttons in order, the song will activate. And I think that's really key into making the game playable to, you mm. know, uh, the people who hadn't really done a rhythm game before. They, they weren't suddenly barricaded from fast traveling around the world because they didn't know how to press buttons in time to the music. You know, that sounds a bit condescending, but some people don't. No, my, my so, memory tells me that um, the original uh, version of the game was slightly less forgiving than the 3DS version in terms of getting the notes played at least in time, whereas now <laughs> you've got quite a, la- a large window to actually get them played. But You could definitely fail. Yeah, but I think the thing that 
the 3DS version and indeed really playing it on any other controller other than the original misses is that the original N64 controller was kind of ocarina shaped um, and I also feel like they've missed a trick although not everyone would have wanted it but as an option to have the option to blow into the mic to play the yeah. ocarina which they've done with, with various other puzzles on other games so I'm surprised they didn't do that anyway sorry Darren yeah, um, I just remember having kind of competitions with my friends to see how fast we could press the buttons to get the song working. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how yeah, weird yeah. is that? But yeah, we yeah, were just yeah. completely enamoured by the fact we could play a wind instrument. And I, I think I, I, I never really heard of Nocarina at that time in my life. And to me, it just looked like a, a bulbous recorder, which it kind of is in a way. But yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, you know, if I'd have played a Zelda game before that... Uh, you know, I'd have known that an ocarina was a thing, or an ocarina. But mm. yeah, when I played Link's, uh, Link's Awakening on the 3DS many years later, and he started busting out the ocarina, I was like, what's going on? <laughs> They've done this before, and I was never there. So it's, um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it is a, it's such a novel thing, and, you know, you know you nail on the head there when it's um, the, the ability to play with it, and just, you know, just, just cheese around with it, and have fun, and as well as having uh, a crucial... Um, you know, elements of the whole game. And we'll, we'll, we'll pull this into talking about the characters because this is also a talk about the art design of the characters because I think, um, again, with the N64, with early Polygon stuff, um, if you actually look at the, the characters as they are now in the original game, they can look, you know, pretty um, rough around the edges, shall we say. I think, you know, even ugly might be an adjective I would use like that we were talking about the super mario 64 goombas before they're like they're, they're not the cutest of of the goombas um but looking at the actual looking at the promotional art that comes with it and the and the design the stuff in hyrule historia and the way that they've been kind of redrawn um and updated in 3ds version i really like the way the gorons look i love the way that the zoras look in this game i, I think they actually although they were hugely limited in polygons back in 1998 um they were getting closer to being obviously compared to the pixels of the previous games they were getting closer to be able to make the things in the game look like the things that in the instruction manuals and in the promotional art and on the boxes and i just really you know i just personally these designs really speak to me i love the fact that they're both cute but also slightly sinister and this is a theme which goes through zelda for me obviously it's a very you know it's very much a subjective thing but obviously majora's mask kind of goes down this road much more um but even ocarina has bits that i find genuinely unsettling in a in a really atmospheric way as much as i feel like relaxed and 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 like i'm in this beautiful world by lake hylia with the with the you know the bugs crawling around and the birds and whatever else when the when the the the, the redead scream or when the fairy comes out the fountain with that ridiculous noise um, there's all these bits in Ocarina of Time which I, which I do love the fact that they went down this slightly creepy route. Mm. Is it is this just me or does everyone else get this? No, it definitely has a, a slight. If you, you know, if you play it long enough, you'll you'll suddenly like say sinister's a word, and it, it kind of feels tilted in the background. It kind of behind the curtain, it's just like a like a scary playhouse or something. And I think when you get the lens of truth, not to jump too far ahead, but I think that's a prime example of how twisted the game can be because mm. the noise when you activate it is really really off kilter and a bit weird and a bit twisted. Mm-hmm. It, it makes a really odd noise, and it kind of sets the tone for all the other weirdness in the world um but for me it's the hands i don't know what they're called but the hand noise the when it's hovering more, over you uh, it, oh god yes yeah, they're just, in all the games aren't they yeah. Masters, oh, yeah. i think well, that's, that's it yes that's, well yeah they they are the epitome of 
twisted in, in the Zelda series. And when I first saw that, I turned it off. I was like, no, it looks like a spider, off, and that was it. <laughs> and, you know, I'd, I'd seen Goma before that, which is a... And the Sculptures, yeah. Yeah, and the Sculptures, which have their own weird kind of um, mannerisms and noise, which is the and same faces, as the Deku. Yeah. But even yeah. though it's the same sound effects, they have their own personalities to go with it. Like yeah, the Sculptures yeah. turn and twist, but and it makes the same noise as a Deku scrub, but yeah. it's, kind of the, it's kind of different, but the but, same... But Deku scrubs are also kind of creepy and weird. And Skull Kids, this is where Skull Kids make their debut, and they've changed their design in recent times for political reasons. But they're still really creepy. They've got little beaks, and they mm. rustle, and mm. they make weird dancing noise. And I love it. I absolutely. This is probably my favourite thing. And uh, about it, in a way, is how the fact it's it seems on the surface like this very kind of feel good fairy tale, but there's all this weirdness. I love it. I love it when games get unsettling. Um, yeah, it, it's it it gets the interest back. Um, which you know, obviously, something like Ocarina of Time is pretty great throughout uh, it, in terms of its tone. But you can have too much happy or something, and it's it's not. You know, we've seen it before. I mean, when people talk about unsettling areas in games that, that catch them off kilter, I think Ravenholm in Half Life Two is always one that 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 people reference, but. There are elements in Ocarina of Time where it sort of catches you off guard in in much mm. the same way, and you know you reference the fairy coming out the fountain. That's that's the one bit that you know even after all this time I still recall uh, that that sort of really caught me out <laughs> because mm. it's really the, odd. Yeah, it's the sound. And such a beautiful room. That was one of the rooms where I remember just standing there in first person mode, just looking at the walls and just thinking, God, this is so beautiful. (laughs) And and it it still comes back. You're playing the 3DS version now. And actually the the new 3DS model, I can actually enjoy the 3D on that somewhat. And and I actually played some of this in 3D. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. You can see it now, can't you? I can see it to an extent, yeah. And um, with the super stable 3D on the on the N3DS, actually, some of this game was pretty, yeah, pretty impressive in in uh, in its in its modern guise. I got quite a lot out of that. Uh, yeah, and another character I wanted to talk about, just in terms of the interaction, was is Kapora Gabora, the the owl, uh, who is, seems to be a sort of uh, a manifestation of the the Sage of Time. Um, who kind of uh, wanders the world or flies around the world to talk to you? But I just again, I love his tune. I love the, the again. We should we should at least we should give a little nod to the localization as well because although this game isn't exactly full of text, um, it's very limited. But the the translation <clears throat> seems to be uh, you know quite sensitive and and um, appropriate. There's no kind of you know horrible. Um, sort of uh, youth speak or, or pop culture references in better than in a the, lot of t- games at that time in, in yeah exactly in the english version and I, the thing i love about kapura gabora is the way his face goes upside down and it's a different face <laughs> i just think that looks so good i, I can't stand him i never have i've never liked really? him yeah Aww. he's all he's always there to interrupt the the kind of the out of the gates feeling you're like let's go it's not like coronation <laughs> street just starting you're like oh here he goes Oh, oh, man, calm down. And you have oh, to go man. through... Yeah, you have to listen to him, and he's got some fairly interesting stuff to say, but he, he's always kind of like, when you're a kid and you're ready to run out the back garden, your mum's like, uh, Darren, before you go, you're like, no, I want to run, let me go, let me be free. And he, he's kind of always in the way. He's like a hurdle for me. And he's I've, a friendly helper. But I'd never... Mm. For a character to be... 
he's a, he's, a, he's a brown owl. But the music that goes with him sounds brown. Does that make sense? It, they they <laughs> yep. kind of go together. That's synesthesia right there for you. <laughs> it's good, but I, I've never liked him from day one, and I just think he's a speed bump. Mm. Um, yeah, so on to the main quest, really. Uh, obviously, we can't talk about every uh, beat that happens along the way, nowhere near. Um, but we must talk uh, a little about the 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 two times element um i read a thing i think it may have been in the most recent um edge sort of 100 games to play publication um which was uh how many games ask you to play in a world which you've already failed to save and that's (laughs) sort of interesting conceptually the fact Mm. that when you when you're young link that's the time that you you're supposed to be you know in um, but for for plot reasons, you actually have to go to the future when things have already gone wrong and Ganondorf has uh, taken over and, you know, the, the world's kind of fallen to ruin. Now, I know that some people actually find it a little depressing that they have to spend large chunks of their game time um, in this world that they've failed to save, to paraphrase the article. Um, but again, without... If you know, assuming that I didn't know the thing that has since been revealed about it actually being a cutback version of three timelines, um, I thought this was a fairly you know Im- ambitious and impressive um, mechanic, which sort of aped the link to the past, dark world, light world thing, but without feeling like it was a repeat. It felt like something new and different, and just really intriguing. Um, you know, I think perhaps they could have gone further with it, and I think they did, and it's called Majora's Mask, but. For this one game, um, it seemed pretty. Yeah, it was pretty impressive that you got to be both a child and an adult. See, I didn't know this was a thing. Like, right. I got the three sacred stones, and I got to the Temple of Time, expecting a boss in the end, and oh, I really? got a whole second half no. of the game. And like, I, I've never had my world rocked so much. It was like, I'm what? I, you saw the sword and the stone kind of thing, and you you, you mm. turned big, and I was like, well, this is just incredible. Like. Wow. It's like I've got Zelda two straight away. Like it was, um, it was unreal <laughs> and kind of unimaginable. Zelda six. It, if well, yeah. If I was in, in my world, it was like a second Zelda game because I'd never played one before. Yeah. But like, um, if I'd have been more attentive as a child and read the articles instead of looking at the pictures, <laughs> I would have known maybe that there was an adult link. But in kind of retrospectively, uh, in that kind of way, I was kind of, kind of, you know, grateful that I didn't because it was like such a shock and a genuine. Um, you know, if someone had spoiled that for me, I kind of I, w- I would have been a bit upset. Someone mm. did spoil the sh- Zelda Sheik thing, and that kind of annoyed me a little bit. But if yeah, if I hadn't have found out uh, half the stuff in this game, I don't think it would have left you know as much an impression as what it did. But yeah, mm. the the turning into adult and being in the future was world changing, literally. Uh, what about the the, the various um, dungeons and things? Now, people always talk about the Water Temple. Um, Again, I've, I've used that phrase I don't like. People always. There has been a lot of comment over the years, in my experience, uh, that people have found the Water Temple to be uh, a sticking point of frustrating design. Now, it's worth saying that in the 3DS version, uh, Grezzo made a few subtle but actually quite prominent, when you know they're there, tweaks to the uh, signposting in the level to make it slightly less confusing um i found going back through these dungeons i did the vast majority of all of them without using uh 
guides walkthroughs whatever obviously they're all out there back in the day back in 98 um i did i wasn't on the internet um again as we've said before i would have been if i'd got stuck it would have been a case of waiting for a book or asking a friend or you know something um and actually mainly just solving it for yourself and that's what i did and i got a huge amount of rewards um and i think by and large for me the temples are um as exquisitely designed as those in uh, the previous uh, in a link to the past shall we say um but there are a few points where i i i found frustration um starting with inside jabu jabu's belly um because it's essentially it's a sort of escort quest um with, with princess ruto who you have to i mean she's she's useless i mean it's just you know she's annoying and she and she just yeah she just she just sits there she just lets you carry her about um it's set inside this you know really icky gooey inside of a fish place which is all warpy and kind of unpleasant to look at and um, that's not my favorite dungeon but then after that you get some amazing stuff the forest temple the fire cavern the ice cavern archetypes all um and as i say my initial memory of the water temple was was pretty decent and this time um yeah i pretty much got to the end i just checked one thing to make sure i was doing the right thing as i recall um of course the 3ds version also has this quite uh sophisticated but blatant hint system if you want it where you can pretty much be shown a vision of the thing you need to do next um, which i didn't use at all but it's quite a cool idea for uh, for, for the modern impatient gamer trying to play a, a, an 18 year old game but um yeah highlights and lowlights of the the temples and dungeons start with darren um, hmm. I remember I'm, get, I'm getting my memories confused with the Master Quest version and the original sure. now. Mm. Um, but the Water Temple for me that originally was a sticking point, like a massive mm. one. But in Master Quest mode, it was like I don't know if it was easier or just different. Um, and I'm, I am getting them mixed up. Easier. I, the Master Quest's hard. <laughs> no, but I, I genuinely think that the Master Quest version of Water Temple was changed a lot, so you oh, could. Okay. It wasn't all about water levels going up and down. It was kind of, for me, like what in the Master Quest version of Water Temple, it was just walk in, press a few buttons, and walk out again. I remember oh, thinking okay. that was significantly easier. Mm-hmm. And, and doing a little Google search just now, um, other people said the same things. Like, you oh, know, okay. yeah, it was it was a lot easier. So maybe they've kind of made some changes based on feedback. Nice. But in terms of um, uh, you know, the original game, um, I. I I like them all and <laughs> that's kind of a bit fanboyish to say I even kind of I'd never Jabby Jabby's Betty's never bothered me uh, it, mm. it's a bit frustrating when you're carrying her around and you know you kind of wish that she'd just walk everywhere and kind of she falls down a hole yeah you know it, but because I had nothing to compare it to like I, mm. I it kind of it was just the way it was and going back to it I, I've never really been able to separate myself from then and now even playing it on the 3DS it's kind of like I know what to do now because I kind of struggled back then with it and learned how to do it. I kind of knew how to do it first time. So I've never really had the frustration other than the water temple with any of the uh, dungeons. Uh, but yeah, the notion of a dungeon to me was something new and, uh, you know, earning items and stuff and coming out and doing a Metroid-esque thing where you have an ability now unlocked in the world. It was just, yeah, I, I can't say it enough, but it's just kind of like a first and it's like, wow, I can now like grapple the you know i could hook shot onto or long shot onto the top of a roof that i've never been to before and there's a dog called richard up there maybe who knows you know it's a it's it's yeah um but as for dungeons and how and the bosses at the end of them uh i, I can't really 
well, no, the Forest Temple is a highlight just because it's so weird. And I, I picked the track on Sound of Play a little while back as something of a, of a highlight. And um, yeah, for, for me, the Forest Temple is a highlight purely because it's just ridiculously spooky. It's terrifying and I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Carl? Um, my, my highlights and lowlights are a little bit different because my lowlights were all to do with combat in any of the dungeons because it's not something that I clicked with. But my highlights Mm. were going through how well designed they were in terms of their progress. So solving it, finding the route, carrying on. You know, I'm I'm sure... Well, we're all obviously very aware of how a Zelda dungeon works, and as I'm sure many of the listeners are. But going through it sort of uh, with someone and discussing it... um, and talking about potential solutions and stuff, that side of it, I absolutely loved. Um, and and that, that's the other fond memories that I've got of Ocarina of Time, uh, discussing these dungeons through with my father as, as, as we went through it. But my lowlights would probably be playing through them solo um, because mm. uh, as much as I liked the sort of the progression uh, through them when it when it actually came to actually having to fight the enemies i found myself getting more frustrated at, at just playing the game at the time i find like i said less so now um but it, it, it's sort of a, a, an odd one because it's not something that i you know whilst i find it better now it's not something that i'm actively playing a lot now because i can't relive how it was at the time uh, mm-hmm. be- because I've already experienced it all in, in in some form, but yeah, just p- from a pure design perspective, everything to do with going through <laughs> them is a, is a highlight. Uh, yeah, I absolutely love the design of, of nearly all dungeons across nearly all the Zelda games that I've experienced. Uh, the vast majority of them I really enjoy because uh, there's just something satisfying about about that completing. And as you said at the time. It, it it's not like you could just log on the internet and find a solution like we all so easily can do these days and sometimes I didn't want to wait a month in the hope that one of the magazines might have a section of guide so if you were struggling and you couldn't figure your way out you just sort of really knuckled down sort of got your heads together and really found out that solution um, which is something that I don't really experience much in any games these days because there's always an out now with YouTube videos or anything of the like. Mm. So, so it's really sort of solving those solutions through um, it is a real fond memory for me. It's hard to be disciplined. Uh, yeah. Uh, Leah, what about you coming to this out of order, as it were, uh, dungeon-wise? Did the, did the puzzles and everything stand up for you in a 3D space, given that this was their first attempt at doing that yeah i think so um well well first i was i was not messing around with with the water temple i straight up i used a guide for that i i had <laughs> i had heard too much um i did not want to get stuck and get frustrated and maybe i wouldn't have i don't know but um i i kind of went into that just determined to push through and and not not get to not get myself in a twist over that but um i the i think that the probably the biggest standouts for me would probably have to be the uh, the Jabu Jabu's belly, um, just because of having to carry Princess Ruto around and mm. not leave her in one place for too long, and not leave her in a place where she would be unhappy. And because she's she's not even just <laughs> she's not even just 
a thing that you have to carry. She's berating you the whole time and telling you you're going too slowly. And, you know, every time she, you do something that she doesn't like, she will let you know about it. Plus, it's just so... Well, we were talking earlier about how things seem kind of unsettling from time to time mm. and how and that that dungeon is kind of gross like you mm. it 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 does a very good job of looking organic and of looking like something and i mean i'm sure if I, i'm sure there have been people who have sat down and mapped it out to see you know what it would actually have to look like to have those be the actual yeah. insides of a living creature and you know obviously that does not work at all you couldn't you couldn't do that but uh, they no. do and it looks the part it looks like yeah. you are inside this giant fish, and and it's all mm. kind of gross and slimy and smelly. Yeah, mm. it. it I, I mean, they did what they set out to do, but it's it's kind of a you kind of question why that was what they wanted to do almost. Mm. Um, the, the switches in Jabu's belly are kind of like cysts, maybe, or kind pimples. of like lumps of yeah, oh, disgusting. Yeah. It is yeah. gross. It's real gross. Mind you, what's also weird is uh, is the adult grown-up form of Ruto, who's a kind of sexy, uh, in inverted commas, fish lady. I imagine. I see. I imagine the uh, the Zora's skin being as this kind of very rubbery, kind of uh, like the outside of a of a of, of a place or a mackerel, and that seems weird to me. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, Karen. <laughs> uh, um, but the I, I think that the one that I probably liked the most was the Forest Temple. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the aspect of of everything that I liked the most was the boss fights, I think, because mm, yeah. where the combat occasionally did get in the way just as you were going through and solving the puzzles and, and mapping out each particular dungeon. Yeah. Regenerating enemies as well, of course. So there's a lot of killing the same things over and over. Yeah. Uh, but once you made it to that final battle in each place, it... It, it was interesting to me because a lot of times in, in Zelda games before this, you could kind of just rush at something with your sword and slap it with your sword until it was dead. You can't do that in this game. If you try that, you're you're not going to have a very good time because you, you have yeah. to kind of pay attention Absolutely. and figure out what's going on and, and then execute on that. Um mm. And you get hints, you get clues, because obviously you know that whatever it is that you found in this particular dungeon is something that you're going to need to use in order to uh, to be successful. But I, I really liked that part, just, just kind of figuring out what it was you had to do, um, because it was never going to be just a straight-up sword fight with any of these things. Particularly no, Phantom and, and Ganon. I really like Phantom Ganon, because he comes out of the pictures, and that's, that was cool. Yeah, there's... There's a lot of imagination, and again, talking about the designs, the the actual the art that went into them. Like, there's some pretty uh, conventional monsters here. You know, there's a dragon and a lizard and a and a and a and a and a spider and whatever else. But again, it's about the decoration they put on them. It's about their their slightly weird faces and weird eyeballs and weird coloration. Um, like, you know, the two witches who fight you at the end of the spirit temple. They're they're not normal. They're, they're like not they're not normal ladies. They're like really freakish cartoon witches which uh and and they sort of yeah they they give me a a a more interesting experience than just some regular you know regular design they're 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 really out there i think as far as these kind of archetypal monsters go and i think that adds a lot Mm. one thing we uh we haven't really talked about yet and i know it's something that literally bugs a lot of people um but thinking about how you get hints for the bosses, of course, one of the ways is to target it and then speak to your fairy, uh, Navi. Now, I know a lot of people 
get really wound up by the by the hey listen stuff um mm. but I, it's never bothered me i like it i like having her as a companion obviously she's only got like three sound samples that she she does over and over again but uh, but i kind of like them it wouldn't be the same without them um mm. it's, it's, it's when you're running around naturally and it, the thing in the corner's pinging off and she's saying hey all the time um, I don't reminding mind you it, what to do yeah yeah because it's kind of like I, I understand what i'm doing but because the game has a trigger point where it, it's like a notification yeah. like on, your, on your on your iphone or your phone or whatever it's kind of like that but it has a noise attached to it it's kind of like when you have like a half health left and it's got that continuous you're gonna die noise it's like all yeah. right i get it just leave me alone like there are some like the handholdy nintendo kind of does great on you after a little while and it's it's, it's, it's the little things never in the massive moments but always in these little tiny granular moments that's it and you can dial her up on the ocarina to speak to her so that she she doesn't need to keep i'm surprised they kept that in the 3ds version the fact that she keeps saying over and over again have you tried going to here yet because you probably need to go here next now we talked a lot about the lack of signposting in previous games and we we felt again speaking for everyone but i felt we felt collectively that for modern tastes or for us at least the first two games were too obscure and too oblique in their signposting. And then the second two, the SNES and G- Game Boy game, got the level just about right for us. So those games didn't have such, uh, you know, it wasn't just a case of if you go here at this point with this and do this thing that you would never think of doing, you will get to progress. There were there were conversations and clues to be had. But Ocarina, another few years down the line... Um, tastes had changed and people were obviously asking for more help and maybe Nintendo were trying to bring more people into playing their games and that sort of thing and yeah you could argue that this was the start of of this you know hand-holding that Nintendo is now arguably famous for even though they I don't think they've Nintendo have reduced the overall challenge of their games at all like the later stages of a recent Mario game are up there you know with Super mm-hmm. Mario World special levels but the ways and means of getting there have been made much more accessible and maybe navi was the kind of the the nagging start of that and for some people it was it was a, a step too far i think in the opposite end of the spectrum like navi's quite irritating at times but they also done some really interesting things where the coloration of text during the dialogue is quite important to notice that like the important things are a different color so mm. they'll say, oh, the thing over there is green. And you're like, well, that's green for a reason, so I must pay attention to that. I mm. think that kept me more signposted than a uh, you know, little blob with wings saying, hey, every five seconds in mm. my face. Mm. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, one hand, they do one thing, and with the other, they, you know, they give you something decent. Yeah, it was, um, Navi's not so annoying. You know, the Zelda series later on has more annoying companions. <laughs> like, I recently played Midna, and I found her quite Aww. intolerable. <laughs> Fee, Fee done my head in. So, like, coming back, Coming back to Navi was quite uh, quite nice. <laughs> I, I think that you, at this point in the Zelda series, you kind of need her, or you at least need something like her. I, I mean, I think that there's mm. a reason from this point forward that you kind of see that companion or that helper character coming back pretty much every time. Because um, you, it, it's not so much that you need her to guide you, it's that you need someone, because since Link doesn't speak, he has no dialogue, so you would be spending a lot of time without anything at all. And and that might be okay. I mean, it it served pretty well up to now. But I I think that getting as 
uh, as more heavily into the narrative as as starts to happen and with you know the 3D environments and and with just progressing technically that way I, I think you start to maybe need a little bit more just to kind of flesh things out so even if you weren't using her for uh, as as somebody to tell you where to go and you know to give you hints as to what you should be doing I, I think that she's serving an important purpose in just kind of being a sidekick at this point now from the community people who have posted kindly at canarince.com slash forum or emailed podcast at canarince.com as usual i've started with what i consider to be the more negative comments and work my way forward to the more positive um, because that's how i like to do it but also this will be interesting from the point of view of balance we'll start with neo gaza who says i hated ocarina my expectations for ocarina were so high that realistically they could never be met as a 22 year old guy i was looking forward to the follow-up to one of my favorite 16-bit titles a link to the past the game had been delayed time and time again, and while the Sony PlayStation was churning out classic after classic, Metal Gear Solid, Final Fantasy VII, Tomb Raider, Resident Evil, to mention but a few, Nintendo's choice to stick with the cartridge format severely hampered the N64 in numerous ways. For me, the time of playing 8- and 16-bit games was done. It was time to move on, and the PlayStation filled that gap perfectly. Mature and complex titles which look fantastic to boot. Then again... This was Zelda, a series which I had completed and loved all previous iterations, including the much maligned Zelda 2. I simply had to go out and play this game, and since Mario 64 broke all the rules for platformers, I was banking on Ocarina to do the same for action RPGs. When I finally popped the cartridge in, my expectations were sky high, and I was more or less expecting a deep, complex 3D rendition of A Link to the Past. What I felt I got was a Super Mario 64 RPG Lite starring Link. I finished the game and felt as though I'd played an okay game, but nothing groundbreaking or memorable. I was let down by one of my most beloved franchises, and my love for the Zelda franchise never really mended since. Ocarina is the last Zelda game that I went out to buy. I played it again in 2010 to see if whether the universal acclaim it had garnered since its original release was warranted, but I came off disappointed once again. Perhaps a victim of my personal expectations, my own gravitation towards meatier and more elaborate games at the time, and my age in 1998, have made sure that Ocarina is the one game where I fell out of love with gaming for a while. Wow. Wow. Next up, we have Tom Hewlett, uh, who is game director at WayForward Technologies. Oh, yes. There is no doubt that Ocarina of Time is an historic game, taking a beloved franchise known for puzzles and adventure and bringing it successfully into the third dimension with innovations like Z-targeting, Z-targeting for the US listeners, auto-jumping and a context-sensitive action button. These were all brilliant additions that are still used in 3D Zeldas today because they work so well. That said, all those innovations first came to us in an empty game that dragged on far too long. Before Ocarina of Time, I never imagined I would ever associate boredom with Zelda, but as they say, this game changed everything. Hyrule Field is expansive, massive really, and utterly devoid of interesting combat or obstacles. Poe hunting is great is a great concept that is maddening, maddeningly complex to control, mercifully fixed by motion aiming in the 3DS version which I turned off, by the way. Limited poly counts gave us hideous NPC designs, some of which still haunt us to this day. Dungeons do have clever puzzles if your idea of clever involves finding the one angle you can see that distant eye switch waiting to be shot by an arrow. At least you have plenty of time as there are very few enemies to interfere and the game just drags on forever. 
I could have done with three fewer dungeons and been perfectly fine. Instead, the game's content is spread thinner than Bilbo on toast. A final nail in the coffin for me were Grottos, a pale stand-in for the huge cave systems Nintendo created for Link to the Past and Link's Awakening. How did the cow get in here anyway? I'm sure I stand alone here, but my core Zelda memory is stumbling through a one-way door in Dungeon 5 of the original and coming face-to-face with ten blue dark nuts. There is nothing even close to this in Ocarina of Time due to technical limitations. Thankfully, core tenets of the 2D Zeldas, packed overworld, pleasant art direction, reasonable puzzles and frequent combat have filtered back into the 3D formula as technology has improved. Even Ocarina of Time's immediate successor Majora's Mask is a huge step forward. I know it's unfair to complain too much, as this was Nintendo's first attempt at 3D Zelda, and it's not as if anyone else could have done better. Growing pains and all that. I just get ruffled, but when I hear people saying, greatest game of all time, or even worse, worse, best Zelda, because I don't see how anyone can believe that, even factoring in nostalgia. Ocarina of Time. Great for its time. Historically significant, rollicking adventure. Worst Zelda, says Tom Hewlett opinions his own to be directed at him (laughs) next up we have andrew brown who says while playing while replaying ocarina of time my experience was constantly at war with the nostalgia or the mythology around the game and its actual existence all of the game's most memorable events and environments are connected by the inelegant hyrule field a sprawl that creates a sense of size and distance but fails to do anything meaningful with that space In my heart, I remember the Deku tree sending me to find the Princess of Destiny and deliver to her the Kokiri Stone. In my head, I remember rolling across the field in a race to reach the castle before the gates close for the night, forcing me to stand about uselessly until the gates open again. This is an apt summary of Ocarina of Time experience, traversing space in between memorable events. As players complete more events and complete all of the activities in the space, their traversal becomes more and more laboured. This is a problem which sadly only exacerbates itself as the game progresses. Exploring this iteration of Hyrule as a young Link, Hyrule Field aside, reveals new pockets of life practically around every corner. From the Gorons inside Death Mountain to the Skull Kids in the Lost Woods, the player encounters just as many strange wonders as deadly dangers. Young Link's Hyrule is dense with life and activities. Adult Link's Hyrule, in contrast, seems far more desolate. Where life has not been driven away or killed off, it struggles to survive at all. This sense of emptiness creates a very effective atmosphere, but that same atmosphere also makes Adult Link's Hyrule much less of a joy to explore. More often than not, Adult Link will find most of the things to do in an area can only be done as Young Link. There is less to discover, less to enhance Link with, which is the antithesis of what a Zelda game had been up until this point. This turns the latter half of Ocarina of Time into traversing the Hyrule space on a dungeon gauntlet, dungeons which resort to repeating many of the same ideas and puzzles to sustain themselves. I will be quite happy to never see another silver rupee puzzle for the rest of my life. Ocarina of Time is one of video gaming's great monoliths, so it's difficult to say much meaningful about it. For better or worse, it is the title against which all subsequent console-based Zeldas are weighed and measured, and I believe it is these problems that I've outlined which future titles are in answer to. From the dense Termina in Majora's Mask to the more intricate Hyrule field of Twilight Princess to the unorthodox spaces of the Great Sea and Skyloft, all future Zeldas have been in answer to the principal design problem of Ocarina of Time, traversing space. Interesting stuff. I would argue, I would counter, if I may, that uh, fast travel uh, with the Ocarina cancels out much of the issue of travelling around Hyrule Field because you basically don't need to do it as an adult because you have a flute. 
Maybe that's just me. Frodo, 427, that's dough like in a cookie. I was very late to the party with anything Nintendo. Growing up uh, being a Sega slash PlayStation kid, I had heard friends talk about the Legend of Zelda series and how great the Ocarina of Time was, but I was happy to brush it off and continue to be an advocate for Final Fantasy VII. Fast forward to post-uni life, a stable job and expendable income, I finally purchased a Wii U and 3DS in 2014. This wonderful back catalogue of Nintendo classics I was aware of, but had never played, opened up to me. I was spoiled for choice. I quickly purchased the 3DS remake of Ocarina of Time, and I jumped right in. I had somewhat mixed feelings initially with Ocarina of Time. I played on and off for a couple of weeks, made it to Jabu Jabu, and for some reason, Ruto, or another, stopped there. I'm guessing I moved on to Bloodborne. The pull from From Software's new PS4 exclusive was too much, and I'm pretty sure I dived into that, not surfacing for some time. I literally didn't touch Ocarina of Time again until January 2016. I saw it coming up on the Volume 5 schedule and made a deal with myself to complete it before the podcast release. Now, I must admit I used some guide tips to get through the Water Temple and I didn't see, do everything that the game had to offer, but I did manage to complete it. I think ultimately I appreciate Ocarina of Time for its place in video game history. But I must say, having not grown up with the series, I don't believe the magic is there for me like those who played this on release. I found that Ocarina of Time shined when you were taking part in the temples, talking to the quirky characters in the towns and smaller areas, but fell flat when having to traverse the world. I found Hyrule Field large, empty and ultimately a bit of a chore to cross. I felt like I spent a lot of time just running slowly between key areas. Also, as much as I loved the temples, some of the puzzles were a little obtuse for me, hence my occasional use of a guide to nudge me in the right direction. Overall, I'm glad that I completed Ocarina. I did have a great time with this well-loved classic. Despite its shortcomings, subjectively, of course, in my eyes, I believe it is a game that you have to experience if you're invested in gaming as a hobby. Now, excuse me while I fire up Majora's Mask to continue my adventure with Link. Thank you very much. Next up, we have Gaio Pinto, who says, For me, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time is the game. It is my favourite game of all time and the game that turned video games from a fun diversion to my favourite hobby. I don't usually replay games, but I've beaten Ocarina of Time 10 to 12 times. I was 12 when Ocarina of Time came out, and 12 is probably the ideal age to fall in love with a game like this. I was old enough to know what to do and where to go, but young enough that I still thought anything was possible and filled in every missing detail with my imagination. I tried to find a way to steal the spiritual stone from Darunia instead of having to beat Dodongo's cavern. I was convinced that there was a way to rescue the Zora trapped in the ice cavern, so I combed every inch of it for hours trying to find them. I was really moved when I had to say goodbye to Saria after the forest temple, and I whooped with excitement after Sheik's real identity was revealed. Ocarina of Time has received so many accolades and so much praise that I completely understand why someone coming to it later would feel it didn't live up to the hype. But playing it at the time was a magical experience, and replaying the really well-done 3DS remake, I still think it holds up great. I know it's cooler to say that Wind Waker or Majora's Mask is your favourite Zelda game, but I'm still on Team Ocarina. Nice. And Lassing says... This game is what got me on my path as an illustrator 13 years after playing it. I got this in 2000, two years after release, and played it with two friends. The problem was that we were 10-year-old Swedes, so we knew how to greet people and ask for the toilet in English, and not much more. 
we resolved to use a dictionary in order to decipher why the guard wouldn't let us through the gate in Kakariko village onto Death Mountain. Saying it out loud kind of makes me agree with the guard about not letting a child get through, though. Or finding that message in a bottle to give to King Zora. In the end, we made it as far as the water temple using the brute force of patience only three ten-year-olds can muster. Instead, since we couldn't experience the game in its entirety, we started to make our own Zelda universe drawing countless dungeons, characters, weapons, and trying to piece them all together. We probably spent way more hours creating our own version of the game in the end. Flash forward to 2013, and I picked up a 3DS with Ocarina of Time because I felt I really needed to finish it. So I did. I blazed through the game in about a week, playing it wherever and whenever I had time. While I loved the game, thank God for the quick-switching iron boots, which I still remembered 13 years on being horrendous, the thing that got me the most was how I had longed for the kind of inspiration and sense of wonder the Ocarina of Time world gave me, really waking up the desire in me to create something of my own again. So, the day after completion, I bought my first digital drawing pad, started to draw every day, and now I'm actually making some money on it to pad out my meagre living as a student. I think it says a lot about a game when it can rekindle that almost childish enthusiasm you feel toward it. Thanks, Zelda. That's a lovely story. Sean S. Thomas next. He says, unlike a lot of people I know, I didn't play Ocarina until years after its release. The N64 launch coincided with me going to uni and financial support for students being removed. Plus, I'd grown up with a master system. So at this point, I was skint and still to experience a Nintendo title. Curious, I bought an N64 over the summer break with my loan, blitzed Super Mario 64 and collected absolutely everything and returned it to Electronics Boutique two days later, just before the return policy ran out. I knew gaming had changed overnight and that exploring 3D worlds was the future, but I needed that £350 for Super Noodles and Nuki Brown. But not long after going back to uni, my best mate got Zelda. He essentially locked himself in his room with it for several days, missing lectures and nights out to play it. In fact, he played Ocarina so much, his girlfriend dumped him over it. Years later, we were reminiscing about it, and he was appalled I'd still never played a Zelda game. The PS3 launch was days away, but I was still skint, just a graduate now instead. However, I found a dirt-cheap second-hand N64 and borrowed his copy. Subsequently overnight, I became a big Nintendo fan. Ocarina of Time was a joyous quest from start to finish, largely as Hyrule felt a far more cohesive 3D world than anything I'd played. Weirdly, for a game I rate so highly, my memories are a bit blurred now. I enjoyed the challenge of using the different boots to beat dungeons, riding across Hyrule Field, love targeting onto boss-weak spots with the Z-trigger, and I recall the final ascent to Ganondorf seeming epic. But it was the fishing mini-game that consumed days of my life. My three housemates and I spent hours playing it, and it's my overriding memory of the game. We'd take it in turns, each trying to catch the beast of the pond finding it hilarious watching our friends fail miserably. I've genuinely spent more time with that side task than I have with many entire games. In a way, that encapsulates what made Zelda, made this Zelda, a cut above, a rich 3D world held together by a strong tail and a wealth of fun diversions to lose yourself in. I've not replayed it since to know how, it well, uh, to know how it's held up, but in terms of its impact on me at the time, it awoke the latent gamer and indeed adventurer in me. Cool. Yes, I can't believe we hadn't mentioned the, mentioned the fishing up until this point. But yes, many hours spent, uh, and I spent a good hour in there the other day as well. Still, <laughs> still got it. Finally, from the forum. Thanks, everyone. This is Loki, I think. Ah, Ocarina of Time. Long was the time when I called this my favourite game ever, and in a way, it still kind of holds true. 
the world of Hyrule instantly drew eight-year-old me in with its lovely aesthetics, timeless music and ominous mystery. I'm actually at a loss for words when trying to describe just what it is about this game that speaks to me so much. I guess it's everything. The different starkly contrasting themes of each temple and area, the secrets and freedom of traversal granted to you by Epona, Hookshot and Iron Boot. At the time, this classical hero epic was entirely new and fascinating to me. It makes me smile when I think about Shigeru Miyamoto and how he used to explore caves and such as a child, inspiring him to create The Legend of Zelda, because in turn, this game inspired me to go out and find adventures of my own. I'm sure most of us who have played games for as long as we can remember are shaped in portion by the games we've played. Out of all the games that made an impression on me as a child, this is probably the most important one. These days I consider Dark Souls to be the supreme game gaming experience and I think it resonates with me so powerfully because it is really just the grown-up version of Ocarina of Time. I've played through the game in excess of 20 times, many of those in a single sitting. It's safe to say that I utterly adore it and will carry all the fond memories with me for as long as I draw breath. Yeah, that's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum to <laughs> where we started. Uh, but wonderful feedback from everyone there. Brilliant stuff. Uh, now, from Twitter, at Kane and Rince, in just three words, people. Hmm. Alex Fusile. Not age well. Brad Davies, Water Temple Nightmares. Rick Jones, Damn Water Temple. Frodo, 427, says, Too many rupees. Cynical Game and Pickle, Dated but Seminal. Paul Durham, Terrifying Shrieking Zombies. Roxy, Hey, look, listen. Francesco Carlini, Shut up, Navi. <laughs> Peter Cleaves, Revolutionary Z Trigger. Sean S. Thomas, 3D Gaming's Awakening. Lassing, Imagination Running Wild. And finally, Johan Malmgren says, Shaped My Life. So, unsurprisingly, uh, we've run long. Sean's got an edit to do. But if we can summarise uh, our feelings for Ocarina of Time briefly, then and now, and uh, yes, is it a recommendation, I suppose? Carl? <laughs> it's hard not to recommend a game that's at the core uh, inspiration for so many others. At the same time, it's also a game that I don't necessarily really enjoy playing, but I love watching and I love listening to other people enthuse about how it's uh, impacted them and how important it was for them throughout their gaming histories and um, you know and how important it is for the 3D adventure game and where stuff has moved on as a result of it. And and it's odd to say that in a position where I don't necessarily enjoy playing the game. I just feel like the game is more important than my own personal feelings on whether or not I like how a game controls. Um, so for that reason, and the fact that it looks really good for first-time players on the 3DS and, and that's readily accessible, I absolutely recommend anybody who's remotely interested in experiencing the Zelda game, arguably the 3D Zelda experience, uh, to pick it up on the 3DS and play it. Thanks, Carl. Um, yes, despite uh, other people's reservations about uh, the traversing of, of the land of Ocarina of Time, which I do I completely understand where they're coming from, uh, I didn't have the same issues with that, even going back to it now. Um, when I was 26, when I first played this, I was far from a child, but it gave me absolutely gave me that sense of wonder. Um, everything from the soundtrack to the you know the crystalline streams and the and the green fields and the and the gorgeous sunsets um, and the sense of magic and mystery and playing it again uh it at points it properly melted me you know like it re really um it 
it is in, intertwined with nostalgia. There's no doubt. So I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm making no attempts to separate that. I don't know. I can't ever know what it would be like to play this for the first time now. But I do know that I still very much enjoyed it as a game. I don't think it's as timeless in a way. Like Carl said, I think a link to the past perhaps has aged more elegantly in a lot of ways. But the 3DS version of this, when it came back out uh, in five years ago, uh, was still received very well by uh, a lot of critics and and i'm with them on that i think it it, do, it does stand up well enough as a as a game to have on your 3ds now and to play now um but if you do i think you get a lot more from it by engaging with it fully not just thinking right this is one off my list of legendary games to tick off and say that i've done um i think this is a game that you get very much more out of if you properly throw yourself into it and spend you know the 20 30 plus hours and do most of the stuff that's there in the game because i think that fleshes out the world if you do just mainline the dungeons that's probably when the world can seem a little bit vast and empty but i think um yeah it's uh, it has to be a recommendation and for me this re- retains much of its magic darren gargett yeah so i i think by virtue of it being my first zelda game it becomes my favorite and it's, it'll be it'll be hard to top it i think they've had a few games it's hard to when you start talking about Zelda games, you automatically compare it to other Zelda games and then, you know, it always becomes a thing. But I think they have made better games since in uh, Wind Waker HD and uh, Link Between Worlds. But I think Ocarina of Time is my favourite. Um, but if I was to recommend it, I'd probably recommend the 3DS version purely for the accessible menu and the slightly shinier graphics. It was a bit of a shock to go back to the N64 textures. And even though I've got a lot of love for the N64, playing the 3DS version and how my mind remembered it being in visual form in front of me, then going back to the N64 and going, God, did it really look that bad? So, you know, the, graphically it's aged not great, and, the, you know, there are a few bit, uh, things here and there that, again, haven't aged great, but that doesn't stop it from being a great game, even today. Uh, so, yeah, I would recommend it, um, especially if you're one of those who didn't ever cross from the 2D to 3D uh, plane, which I know quite a few people did. So if you haven't, yeah, check it out on the 3DS. Thanks, Darren. Now, it may not be our most positive summation, but she is our Triforce Tattooed guest, so let's conclude with Leah. I don't have the the nostalgia contributing to, to my playthrough of Ocarina of Time, but I still think that for all its flaws, it is probably worth a playthrough if you have not already. I think that maybe it would help to go in with expectations managed a little bit if this is something that you haven't played before. Because likely, if you're the kind of person who would get anything out of Ocarina and who would enjoy or think you would enjoy playing Ocarina, if you're listening to this show and you have any kind of interest in that and somehow have not picked it up yet, then... I think that you've probably played other games that are like it, and you've seen where it's led. And if, like me, you have had those experiences and somehow have not played Ocarina, do it. It is available in a lot of different ways, and I I don't think that you should go into it expecting that you're going to have the exact same experience as somebody who played it in 1998 or or around that time. And I, I didn't have that experience. And that's kind of sad. I wish I, I envy those people. I wish that I had that kind of that kind of backdrop leading up to my experience. But I, I'm still glad that I played it. I'm still glad that I could see where a lot of the things that I love so much about the later Zelda series came from. Um, so yes, I do. For all of its flaws, still recommend uh, that anybody who thinks that they would enjoy this type of game 
to pick it up and give it a try. And maybe you'll feel like me and maybe you, you will appreciate it for what it is, but maybe it won't be one of your favorites. But then again, I, I would not have expected as many people to have written in as did who didn't play it at launch or maybe didn't think that they were going to love it as much as they did. And it ended up practically changing their lives in some cases. So mm. maybe that'll be you. So yes, I, I think that it's, it's definitely worth a shot if you have not already played it. Well put, beautifully said. Uh, and yes, Majora's Mask in another month. Um, but until then, it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Darren, Carl and Leah and to tell you that next time, that's issue 218, another fondly remembered, although perhaps mainly for rather different reasons, N64 legend, Conker's Bad Fur Day. 